Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 234. We'll continue in the book of First Chronicles with a brief summary of chapters 12 through 15 and follow with some thoughts about dancing and decorum. Despite the coronation which we witnessed in the previous chapter, David's monarchy is not a done deal. Chapter 12 lists all the groups that have come to Tsiklag to back the new king. The first are Benjaminites, quote, the warriors aiding in battle, armed with the bow, with either their right hand or their left, with sling stones and arrows for the bow. And they were of Saul's kinsmen of Benjamin. The second are from the tribe of God, who, quote, defected to David to the stronghold in the wilderness, valiant warriors, men of the army for battle, wielding buckler and spear, their appearance like lions and swift on the mountains as gazelles. The third are Judahites and other Benjaminites, who have to pass a security check first, quote, if in peace you have come to me to aid me, I will have a heart bound together with you, but if it is to deceive me, On behalf of my foes, when there is no outrage in my hands, may the God of our fathers see and judge. Amasai, head of the thirty, is overcome by a spirit and bursts into song. Quote, To you, O David, and with you, son of Jesse, peace, peace to you, and peace to those who aid you. For your God has aided you. That's a beautiful song. The final group are from the tribe of Manasseh. And once this group is integrated into David's forces, he moves to Hebron, where he is hailed as the new king. Quote, This is the count of the chiefs of the vanguard that had come to David at Hebron to turn round the kingship of Shaul to him, as Adonai had said. The celebration is fierce. Quote, And they were with David three days, eating and drinking, for their brothers had prepared for them. And also their relatives as far away as Issachar and Zvulun and Naphtali were bringing food on donkeys and on camels and on mules and on oxen, provisions of flour, fig cakes and raisin cakes and wine and oil and cattle and sheep in abundance, for there was a rejoicing in Israel. Chapter 13 begins with a consultant meeting. The newly crowned king gathers the officers of his army for a chat. He wants to summon the Kohanim and Levites and have them bring the Ark of the Covenant to a more permanent location. The officers respond, You got it, boss. And so, quote, David assembled all Israel from Shichor in Egypt to Levochamat to bring the Ark of God from Kiryat Yarim. The grand procession, which is led by the king himself, and, quote, all Israel were playing before Adonai with all their might and songs and with lyres and with lutes and on tambourines and on cymbals and with trumpets. Except when they arrive in Chidon, the oxen that are pulling the wagon carrying the ark slip and Uzzah reaches out his hand to steady the ark. The moment he touches the ark, God smites him. David is understandably freaked out, and he, quote, was afraid of Adonai on that day, saying, how can I bring to me the Ark of God? And so he settles the Ark in the house of Oved Edom the Gittite, where it remains for three months. Chapter 14 finds the new king making diplomatic inroads. Hiram, king of Tyre, sends stonemasons and carpenters to, quote, build him a house. David also takes additional wives to expand his monarchic line. When the Philistines hear of David's coronation and consolidation of his line, they deploy forces to the Valley of Rephaim 
David wants to make sure that the next move is God-approved. And when God replies, quote, go up and I will give them into your hand, David moves into action. The first battle ends in resounding victory. David consults God again. But this time, God has more specific instructions. Quote, you shall not go up after them, turn around behind them, and come up at them from opposite the willows. And as soon as you hear the sound of marching on top of the willows, then shall you sally forth in battle. For then shall God go out before you to strike down the camp of the Philistines. When David does as he's told, the second victory is even greater than the first. And quote, a name went out for David in all the lands, and Adonai put his fear upon all the nations. In chapter 15, David attempts to relocate the ark again, but this time, rather than leave anything to chance and divine disapproval, he asks the Levites to handle the move because, quote, God had chosen them to carry the ark of Adonai and to minister to him for all time. So the Kohanim and Levites consecrate themselves, and a contingent of Levites take up the poles and carry the ark on their shoulders to the accompaniment of, quote, lyres, lutes, and loud cymbals to raise up their voices in rejoicing. And the party keeps on rolling, with music and dancing and the near offering of seven bulls and rams until they reach the gates of the city of David, where, quote, Michal, daughter of Shaul, looked out through the window and saw King David dancing and celebrating, and she scorned him in her heart. Cribbed from 2 Samuel chapter 6, this interaction does not include Michal's cutting rebuke and David's bitter retort, which I suppose is intentional. The chronicler is interested less in personal politics and more in politics politics. This is not the first time where we've come across a common saying and tried to figure out its origins. Once again, there's a lot of misattributions about who said dance like no one is watching first. There is our usual suspect, Mark Twain. Some attribute the line to Satchel Paige, legendary baseball player. And others to renowned educator William Perkey. Quote investigator, yep, that's a thing concluded that the saying was a variation of a lyric in 1987's Come From the Heart by songwriters Susanna Clark and Richard Lee. Now, why do I bring this business here? Because chapter 15 concludes with a scene where the archetypal Jewish king is indeed dancing like no one's watching. The chronicler tells us rather dryly that King David was, quote, dancing and celebrating. The source material in 2 Samuel adds a little more detail, describing David as, quote, whirling with all his might before Adonai, girt in a linen ephod. Later, 2 Samuel states that David was, quote, leaping and whirling before Adonai. But the thing is, David is channeling that no one's watching energy, even though everyone is watching, and it doesn't seem to bother anyone. Just the opposite, from both accounts, David's dancing is an integral part of the festivity. But it's hard to imagine, you know, maybe 10 years ago, it'd be hard to imagine any world leader stomping the yard at the head of a procession. Such a move would be considered undignified and sorely lacking in gravitas. Gravitas is a Roman concept, one of the virtues that made it possible for Roman citizens, particular statesmen, to embody Romanitas, or Romanness. 
exuding gravitas, that is, by being dignified and behaving with decorum, made leading possible. And here's David dancing in what would pass today as tidy whities at the most public event in his monarchy so far. Even the chronicler, as I said, doesn't seem to have a problem with this. But this changes as we move into later eras and political contexts. Yitzhak Abravanel, the Hebrew commentator who was also Ferdinand and Isabella's financial advisor until the expulsion of 1492, offers this take, quote, Had he, that's David, danced before some person to honor him, it would have been a contemptible act, for his status was higher than any other person's. But in his leaping before Adonai, there was no cause for contempt. So Abravanel tries to split the difference here, acknowledging the difference between dancing for God and dancing for, say, Arsenio Hall. The day after Bill Clinton won the California primary in June of 1992, clinching the Democratic nomination for president, he borrowed an aide's pair of Ray-Ban wayfarers and took his tenor sax to the set of the Arsenio Hall show. He accompanied the house band during the intros and Arsenio coming out to the sounds of his fans hooting and hollering before segueing into Heartbreak Hotel. Here, let, let's actually have a listen. <laughs> later, this performance seems anodyne, almost hacky. But at the time, Clinton's public sax act was deemed indecent. Folks in the pundit class called it embarrassing and undignified. Conservative columnist George Wells said it coarsened democratic discourse. How exactly is unclear. But it worked. Polls suggested that about 40% of voters perceived Clinton as a smooth, fast-talking politician. Slick Willie trailed George H.W. Bush in the critical issue of trustworthiness by 24 points. So, with the nomination basically locked up, the Clintonistas desperately needed some way to rebrand the 45-year-old Arkansas governor for a national audience, and if possible, show America his human side. <laughs> 
But the Democratic National Convention, which would be a natural showcase for the candidate, was more than a month away. And more importantly, the Clinton camp had little money for ads. But late-night talk shows were free. Clinton was not the first president or potential president to be on a commercial television program. Richard Nixon made a brief cameo on Laugh-In in in 1968. Sock it to me? (laughs) Clinton's appearance on Arsenio Hall on June 3rd, 1992 was the great unknown and the crowd went wild. Hall said, quote, It's good to see a Democrat blowing something other than the election. Well, that joke has taken on a new meaning since. After Arsenio, Clinton went on Larry King Live and appeared at an MTV town hall. He became suddenly more relatable. The same dynamic, it could be said, worked for Donald Trump and even Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who in 2015 was best known for starring in the series Servant of the People, where he played a high school teacher who became president of Ukraine. Members of the show's production company registered the show's name as a political party in 2018, perhaps to keep it from being co-opted by someone else. But before Zelensky even formally announced his real candidacy for the presidency, he was already a front-runner in the polls. He was inaugurated president of Ukraine in May of 2019. Which raises the question, is gravitas even a relevant concept any longer? Is having it a necessity for leadership, or more to the point, Is lacking it a disqualifier? I don't know. I mean, it seems not. Here in Canada, we had a rock and roll prime minister in the 1960s who took the pop culture scene by storm. Trudeau mania was as palpable and to some as undignified as Beatlemania. But at least Trudeau had been a journalist and an academic, as well as a member of parliament, before palling around with John Lennon and Yoko Ono. But perhaps a second look at 2 Samuel and 1 Chronicles provides a different take. Perhaps because A, David is a really good dancer, B, the relocation of the Ark is a cause for celebration, and or C, I dare anyone to say otherwise in an autocratic monarchy. But in both sources, here in 1 Chronicles and earlier in 2 Samuel, mention is made of one person who voices an objection. Michal, the daughter of the dead king Shaul and David's wife. Michal, if you recall, fell in love with David, and David had to provide 200 Philistine foreskins to Shaul as a bride price. Later, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, Michal helps David escape through a window from her father's henchmen. And here she is, looking through a different window, seething in contempt. 2 Samuel reports her sarcastic dig, quote, How honored today is the king of Israel who has exposed himself today to the eyes of his servant slave girls as some scurrilous fellow would expose himself. Zing! David's rejoinder is not as eloquent, but it's clear that both authors side with the king. The chronicler doesn't even bother to include this exchange, or 2 Samuel's statement that Michal ends up childless. But if we pause for a moment and not drink too deeply from the Davidic Kool-Aid for a minute, we might look at Michal's comments in a different light. Is there no merit in pointing out that the king has tossed whatever gravitas he possessed out the window? For sure, unless gravitas is not necessarily a meaningful concept, or perhaps lacking it is the default. Because if we recall, Shaul too was swept up in a moment, 
and also found himself hanging around with the biblical equivalent of deadheads. What I'm referring to is the incident in 1 Samuel chapter 10 when Shaul, quote, came there to the hill, and he saw a band of prophets coming toward him. Thereupon the Spirit of God gripped him, and he spoke in ecstasy among them. When all who knew him previously saw him speaking in ecstasy together with the prophets, the people said to one another, What's happened to the son of Kish? Is Saul too among the prophets? So it seems, when it comes to kings or future kings, their personal affectations are less important than their inherent status as the anointed of God, as if being chosen by God gives you space to do the most eccentric and out-there stuff and remain above criticism. You can hang with the deadheads or dance in your tidy whities as if no one is watching. It really doesn't matter as long as you're good with God. If you like what you heard today, spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text, nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning vibe this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 235, when we continue in First Chronicles with chapters 16 through 19.